Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, News and Analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas. This is a pre-recorded show which will be uploaded for your listening edification on the evening of Monday, August the 24th, 2020. You can listen live each Monday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 18th post-COVID show, A New World, But the Same Place. So stay tuned. But first, as we do before every bringing light into darkness show, we first go to war. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gattos. Good evening. We now turn to the content of tonight's show. Last week, we discussed wealth inequality in this country and throughout the world, and how so few have benefited so greatly, even during the COVID virus. It spoke to the indication that we have a failed system, and this is what lies beneath the protests that have been going on for months throughout the nation regarding Black Lives Matter and the conditions that afflict so many people's ability to meet their basic needs. This week, we turn our attention to the issues going on outside of our country, specifically and mainly on Yemen. This week, I was shocked that Colin Powell was invited to present a presentation at the DNC, one of the main architects, purveyors of false information that led us to an illegal war in Iraq. And we as a country, I don't think, fully appreciate the fact that when you combine the sanctions in Iraq with the invasion of Iraq that Colin Powell was instrumental in creating, the death toll in Iraq exceeds millions of people dead. And tonight's show goes back to that period of time in Iraq and the sanction period and our cutting off our acts through the UN to ensure that water treatment types of products were not allowed into Iraq during this sanction period that resulted, just the sanction period, 
in hundreds of thousands of deaths to children, right? 500,000 was the number, mainly from cholera or waterborne illnesses. And so this week, as we talk about Yemen and connect it back to Iraq, the point is to show the pattern, the pattern of these interventions. Because when you do not see a pattern, you can always just feel like it was an exception, an aberration. But we're going to be looking at Libya, Yemen, and Iraq, and the attacks on their infrastructure that resulted in their sanitation and medical systems completely going off the grid. Countries and their peoples are suffering significantly. Yemen's medical facilities have been decimated by more than five years of war with only half fully functional. The United Nations estimates that 20.5 million people, that's two-thirds of their population, need help to get clean water. Oxfam warned last month that thousands of people could be dying from undetected cases of cholera because COVID-19 has overwhelmed the country's remaining health facilities. This is from the Oxfam press report of just last week, August 18th. One air raid every 10 days on hospital clinics, wells, and water tanks throughout the Yemen war. Again, a press release from Oxfam. Moreover, from the same source, the vital infrastructure like hospitals, clinics, water tanks, and wells have consistently been in the crosshairs throughout this conflict. Their damage and destruction make Yemen even more vulnerable to diseases like cholera and COVID-19. That was Oxfam's Yemen country director, Musin Sidikwe's words. And then finally, as part of this introduction to the show, I just wanted to cite a report that presents the findings of a commission study on the impact of war on development in Yemen that was cited through scenarios using the Sustainable Development Goals lens. The views expressed in the study are those of the authors, and it was then made available through the United Nations uh, for consumption. It's a country of 30 million people. 153rd on the Human Development Index list. In other words, one of the poorest nations of the world. 138th in extreme poverty, 147th in life expectancy, 172nd in educational attainment. But my focus or my concern is the concern of many. From this report, the impacts of the conflict in Yemen are devastating. Right now, today, as you are hearing this broadcast, this is a current report with nearly quarter of a million people killed directly by fighting and indirectly through lack of access to food, health services, and infrastructure. Of the dead, 60% are under the age of five. And we are supporting Saudi Arabia's relentless attack, as you'll find detailed in this show tonight. So please stay tuned and thank you for caring. Welcome Alternative News listeners. This is Bringing Light into Darkness. Monday News and Analysis. This is your host, Pedro Gatos. And this is 91.7 FM on the radio dial and KOOP.org on the wide world web. And we are blessed to have with us returning to the show, Alan McLeod. Alan is a staff writer for Mint Press, and after completing his PhD in 2017, he published two books. One was Bad News from Venezuela, 20 Years of Fake News and Misreporting. And his second book was Propaganda in the Information Age, Still Manufacturing Consent. Dr. McLeod has also contributed to Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, The Guardian, Salon, The Greystone, Jacobin Magazine, Common Dreams, The American Herald Tribune, and The Canary. And so, Dr. McLeod, welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness. 
Yeah, it's good to be with you. Well, listen, I wanted you to comment. I read uh, an article of yours that is connected to a lot of themes that I think are important for us to speak to as much as possible. It was called Oxfam. Saudis carry out the equivalent of one attack every 10 days on Yemen's medical and water facilities by Alan McLeod back on the 19th, just a couple of days ago. And I wanted to put it into the context of a subject that I've been studying for some time that we've talked somewhat on this show. Uh, But when you go back to the issue of sanctions and how they've been used, in 1998, Dr. Thomas J. Nagy came across an article and Dr. Nagy, he was at the George Washington University, so he, he wrote a piece back in June, June 12th of 2001, that was called The Role of Iraq Water Treatment Vulnerabilities in Halting One Genocide and Preventing Others. And he indicates in this article that he had by chance come across and discovered the partially declassified U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency document entitled, quote, Iraq Water Treatment Vulnerabilities, end quote. It's a 1991 DIA document. He found it on the Department of Defense Gulf Link site. So he validated it, and it was being sent from the DIA to CENTCOM, which is the the United States Central Command. That's one of the 11 unified combatant commands in the U.S. Department of Defense. And so what I wanted to share out of the piece was part of the content, which said that they now consider thought experiment. What he was trying to suggest is he tried to flip the script, thought experiment, after going through this memo that suggested how and exactly what would occur if these sanctions were kept in place to keep chlorinators and water treatment products and those types of things from getting to the Iraqis to fix the water problem. So for the purposes of kind of flipping the script and to impress upon the reader the immorality of the propositions, the immorality of what is going on in Iraq, of what we were to enable regarding Iraq and the sanctions, he asks us, the reader, to assume that the document is a genuine product of the Iraq Defense Intelligence Agency and not the U.S. Intelligence Agency. So with the shoe on the other foot, so to speak, and that the Iraq document sets forth the following. One, a detailed and feasible plan from Iraq to destroy the entire water and sanitation system of the United States. An Iraqi plan to prevent the rebuilding of the water and sanitation system of the United States for as long as Iraq wishes. And thirdly, an Iraq plan spelling out the likelihood Uh, or the likely health impact upon the population of the United States, namely epidemics caused by the resulting contaminated water supply. And fourthly, and lastly, an Iraq plan which explains in detail why that no U.S. countermeasures can succeed in rebuilding the American water and sanitation system against the wishes of Iraq. So obviously he indicates there would be significant problems. So he says if we could accept the sourcing who would have any problems with denouncing this U.S. water treatment vulnerabilities document as genocidal, as the gravest possible breach of the law of land and warfare, as a plan for infanticide, as a means of selecting, killing the very young, as well as the very old, the sick and the pregnant, and secondly, suggesting massive airstrikes against Iraq, citing the right of preemptive military action. So the most draconian sanctions regime in modern history is described by a letter from Representative Tony Hall to Secretary of State Madeleine Albright in in this piece that Nagy wrote. And it described in the press release 
his representative Tony Hall press release of June of 2000 the following. He says, quote, I share UNICEF's concern about the profound effects of increasing deterioration of Iraq's water supply and sanitation on its children and the children's health. The prime killer of children under the age of five is diarrheal types of diseases, and they have reached epidemic proportions, and they now strike four times more often than they did back in 1990. Holds on contracts for the water and sanitation sector are a prime reason for the increases in sickness and death. Of the 18 contracts, all but one hold was placed by the U.S. government. The contracts are for purification chemicals chlorinators, chemical dosing pumps, water tankers, and other equipment. Steps have been taken to assure dual-use items are not diverted. He goes on, UNICEF follows the United Nations three-tier monitoring system to ensure equipment and supplies are used as they are intended. I urge you, Secretary Albright, to weigh your decision against the disease and death that are unavoidable result of not having safe drinking water and minimum levels of sanitation. The most disturbing aspect of Hall's letter, Nagy writes, is that it makes it clear that the strategy identified by this water sanction product process in 1991 was still taking its lethal toll nine years later in 2000. The prime executioner of the fatal strategy of killing the very young was the United States, which exercised the vast majority of vetoes on material essential to rebuilding Iraq's water treatment system. The deprivation of systems essential to life is, of course, explicitly prohibited by the Genocide Convention. The United States' junior foreign policy partner, the UK, has welded the remaining 10% of vetoes to the United States' 90% of vetoes, or quote-unquote, holds on contracts for Iraq. The strategy consists of denial and delay of those items which are indispensable to the restoration of Iraq's demolished water and sanitation systems. Uh, This interpretation is further collaborated by the reports of key NGOs that were involved, the International Committee of Red Cross and CARE. It's also collaborated by key agencies of the UN, uh, such as the FAO and and UNICEF, and other NGOs such as CASI and Voices of the Wilderness as well as the past two heads of the UN humanitarian effort in Iraq, namely Assistant Secretary General Dennis Halliday and Hans von Sponick. They both resigned in protest to the sanctions regime, which Mr. Halliday, who happens to be a Nobel Prize nominee, called Steady State Genocide, end quote. And Representative David Bonoir, B-O-N-O-I-R, has characterized the same sanctions policies as quote-unquote and fenicide masquerading as foreign policy. As a permanent destruction of the water and sanitation system of the entire country, one might expect that they were not aware of the lethal consequences of this Iraq water treatment vulnerabilities. But Dr. Nagy says this is very unlikely, certainly for the medical personnel involved in light of a series of studies on the effect of contaminated water from the degraded water treatment systems of Iraq on childhood mortality, published in the leading journals, such as the U.S. and British medical journals, such as the New England Journal of Medicine, the British Journal of Medicine, the Annals of Internal Medicine, the Lancet, and the American Journal of Public Health. So this is well known. So basically, we took Iraq, which at that time was the what? The most advanced nation in the Middle East, no matter what you thought of Saddam Hussein, there's no denying that the people of Iraq lived a higher quality life than anyone else in the Middle Eastern Arab nations there. 
And, and I wanted to juxtapose that with also what happened in Libya. And Libya has this sandstone aquifer. It's a fossil aquifer in the Sahara Desert of Libya. And it's called the Great Man-Made River. It's actually the world's largest irrigation project. And I was following this. A number of articles described, Google it and check this out. But the amount of water that is there is just a stunning huge amount. And the amount of investment that Libya made under the uh, Gaddafi regime to translate that water into this infrastructure of an irrigation project made it a great man-made river, so to speak, a miracle of sorts. One of the authors that wrote one piece, I'm just going to cite from one piece here because it captures some of the stuff that is important for our analysis. But this is written back in 2015 by Nafiz Ahmed. He's a PhD and investigative journalist on international security and a best-selling author and is a winner of Project Censored Award for Outstanding Investigative Journalism. This is back in 2015. But anyhow, the military targeting of civilian infrastructure, especially of water supplies, is a war crime under the Geneva Conventions, he writes. And this is precisely what NATO did in Libya, while blaming the damage on Gaddafi himself. Since then, the country's water infrastructure and the suffering of its people has only deteriorated further. Critical water installations were bombed and then blamed on Gaddafi. It was, in fact, NATO which debilitated Libya's water supply by targeting critical state-owned water installations, including a water pipe factory in Brega. The factory, one of just two in the country, made these huge pipes. The other one was in Gaddafi's hometown of Sirte. But they manufactured these pre-stressed concrete cylinder pipes for the great man-made river project and irrigation and ingenious irrigation system transporting water from aquifers beneath Libya's southern desert to about 70% of the population. On 18th of July, a rebel commander boasted, and this is back in 2011, that some of Gaddafi's troops had holed up in the industrial facilities in Brega, but that rebels had blocked their access to water. Quote, their food and water supplies are cut and now they will not be able to sleep. In other words, the rebels, not Gaddafi loyalists, had sabotaged the water pipeline. And so there's a little bit more information on how NATO followed up by bombing the water pipe factory on July 22nd on the pretext that this, there was a military storage facility, which it was not, that concealing rocket launchers. But anyhow, or by August, UNICEF, and again, this is 2011 August, reported that the conflict had put the great man-made river authority, the primary distributor of potable water in Libya, at risk for uh, failing to meet the country's water needs. And then finally, that same month, the agency France Press reported that the great man-made river, quote, could be crippled by the lack of spare parts and chemicals, end quote. And it was reinforced by NATO's destruction of water installations critical to the great man-made river in Sirte and Brega. So with that being said, Libya, of course, in 2011, for those that follow this show are aware of it because we, we have critically studied it, the highest human development index in all of that continent of Africa, of some 54 countries, was in Libya. Of course, part of that quality of life is the access to water and everything else. Since our intervention, our U.S.-led NATO intervention, Libya has been a hornet's nest of terrorism, as well as horrific living conditions for formerly the country that had the highest human development index in the continent of Africa. And so with that being said, 
And I'm sorry for that long introduction, Alan, but I thought it was really important because your article and other writers have been talking about terrible events that have been going on in Yemen since 2015 that now have cost close to 250,000 lives. And it's being promoted mainly by Saudi Arabia, which has received apparently three times more military aid from the United States than any other country that we give military aid to. And in your piece, again, I want to repeat the name of it for people to check this out if they're interested. Oxfam Saudis carry out equivalent of one attack every 10 days on Yemen's medical and water facilities by Alan McLeod that or was posted on August 19th of 2020 with Mint Press. So Alan, the same theme, medical and sanitation infrastructure being targeted. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what provoked your concern with making this more public since obviously mainstream media has failed to cover this? In fact, we have talked about how MSNBC went a whole year or two without even making a mention of Yemen. And so how could this world's greatest humanitarian disaster that's been going on be ignored? And tell us a little bit more about what's happening on the ground. Yeah, I mean, sure, if you're a true believer in peace and human rights, Yemen has really got to the top of your list of concerns right now. The United Nations has called it the world's worst humanitarian crisis. They've only got about 28 and a half million people living there. But right now, over 20 million, it's estimated by the UN, need help accessing drinkable water. And 14 million, over half of the country's population, are at risk of famine as well. And this has been going on for a number of years. Aid agencies have warned that, that there's a terrible crisis coming. In fact, the director of the World Food Program, an American, a Trumpist actually appointed by Trump, said that there could be a famine of biblical proportions in Yemen and the Horn of Africa if uh, the world does not get its act together and uh, send relief. Just like in Libya, much of the Middle East, the trouble began with the Arab Spring in 2011 when... Um, Houthi groups, who are situated in the west of the country, much more populous region, started rebelling against the president and actually forced him to resign, which led his vice president, uh, Hadi, to become president. But Houthis did not accept Hadi either. They are actually a Shia minority in a majority Sunni country. In the end, they started a rebellion, which has now lasted, what, in nine years. And it really kicked off in 2015 when hostilities started to turn violent. And that was really because Saudi Arabia, Yemen's much bigger neighbor, got involved. And the Saudi military has really taken side with the Yemeni government in this fight. And what they have done is they have, they have just intentionally used their superior weaponry to bomb and destroy the country, particularly the Houthi-controlled areas in the West, which are much more heavily populated. So, yeah, what we've seen is Saudi Arabia doesn't really want to get boots on the ground because its troops are not really committed. A lot of them are conscripts. They do not really want to be dying in a foreign war in some other country, whereas the Houthis are really committed to their cause. And so what we've seen is a, basically a protracted stalemate where Saudi Arabia bombs the country from afar, generally targeting soft targets like farms or civilian structures, you know, uh, sewage plants, etc. And that's what this Oxfam report was all about that I was referencing in the article. Over 200 times since the conflict began, the Saudi-led coalition has targeted either medical or water infrastructure, which is equivalent to one air raid every 10 days 
for the entire conflict. And the result has been devastating with a uh, lack of clean water, a lack of food, people starving to death. I'm sure even if uh, you haven't been paying attention, and certainly it's easy not to do so with uh, the media not talking about it, probably most people have seen images of skeletal bodies coming out of Yemen. And they've also had uh, the return of 19th century diseases such as cholera, which is, of course, a disease of uh, bad water, which is what happens when countries' infrastructure, particularly sewage, and its clean water just gets destroyed. So that's the situation there, and obviously Saudi Arabia should bear the brunt of the criticism. But we should also remember, you know, I'm sure probably most of your listeners are on board with thinking that Saudi Arabia is uh, not a country that should be admired in this uh, dictatorship. But it's only really able to sustain this bombing because it has the support in many ways of Western countries. And one of the most critical is that countries like the United States or the United Kingdom are funneling weapons in exchange for Saudi money. So, for instance, Saudi Arabia bought in 2018 three times as much American weaponry as any other country in the world. And also near the top of that list were other countries in the Saudi-led coalition, like, for instance, Kuwait and Qatar, which are also helping with the destruction. Likewise, the United Kingdom has got a very large arms industry industry, 49% of all British sales of uh, weapons abroad go to Saudi Arabia. And so much of this is specifically being used to target civilians in Yemen. And we all know it. You know, a while back there was a small scandal that uh, broke in the Western countries when it was found that a Lockheed Martin bomb was used to destroy a school bus which killed 29 children in Yemen, I think. Yeah, but we also have a situation where the United States does not particularly want to stop selling weapons to Saudi Arabia. The defense lobby is very powerful in the U.S., and they are making billions, tens of billions of dollars in profit off of this terrible war, which some people have labeled a genocide. And this is really the problem here. You know, Mike Pompeo continues to sell weapons to Saudi Arabia recently. There was a sort of uh, internal inquiry which, which looked at, you know, whether this was a moral or ethical thing to do. And in the end, they said that Pompeo had played it by the book and had done things legally. So he's off the hook. I know Bernie Sanders and Rokana have uh, supported those to try to stop U.S. sales to Saudi Arabia, but that was actually vetoed by the president. And so while these terrible atrocities are going on abroad, they are actually being enabled by people much closer to home. And that's really what I was trying to get at and trying to get people to think about when I wrote that article. Yeah, that's really important. So a couple things just to follow up questions on, on your article and that analysis. First of all, we know Saudi Arabia, if you were to rank human rights violators in the world, would have to be the number one country or certainly at the top of the number one countries of human rights violators to begin with. So it's shocking to me that the American public, and you know, you wrote about propaganda and that type of thing in one of your books, but we've been propagandized to not kind of connect the dots of how atrocious these facts on the ground are that you just went through. You have that greatest human rights violator being supported by U.S. and U.K. You said U.K., close to 50% of all their arms exports go to Saudi Arabia. You said that Saudi Arabia gets three times more than the next highest purchaser of U.S. arms as of 2018, I believe you said. And I presume that includes Israel, which I always thought was got a, a, an awful lot of arms. But Saudi Arabian, just to yeah, cut you off, Saudis are actually paying for it. Israel tends to get a lot of theirs for free. 
and so that's why the Saudis are at the top of the list. Oh, okay, okay. So, so w- w- what would that ratio be if they were both paying? Do you know? Oh, I'm not sure actually. Yeah, yeah, not yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks for clarifying that, though. We need to take a short break for the cause. We will be back right after this. This is bringing light into darkness. This is the premier community radio station of the nation, ninety-one point seven KOOP. Back after this. <laughs> 